0: Hello listeners, producer Hugo here. Just a quick note before we start,
1: this episode contains some graphic descriptions of torture that might not be suitable for everyone.
2: In 2011, U.S. Army Brigadier General Mark Martins addressed the press to announce the beginning of legal proceedings against Abderrahim al-Rahim al-Nashri.
0: I am confident the military commission that was convened here today to try the charges against Mr. al-Nashri referred to it will answer the call with fairness and with justice.
2: On May 30th of this year, over 10 years since the proceedings began, the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention released a damning report condemning the torture and imprisonment of Abd nashri by the United States. Al-Nashri is one of 30 remaining detainees at the notorious Guantanamo Bay Detention Center. He has spent more than two decades in U.S. custody. The UN report found the United States, as well as seven other countries, involved in his capture and interrogation as quote, jointly responsible for the torture and cruel, inhumane or degrading treatment of Mr. Al-Nashri. The report went on to find that he, quote, has been deprived of the fair trial guarantees protected by U.S. and international law. It called for his immediate release and compensation. Al-Nashri's case has once again put a spotlight on the severe human rights abuses that take place at Guantanamo Bay and the plight of the men that remain imprisoned there, most of whom have never been charged with any crime. This week, How did Guantanamo Bay come to be one of the most notorious prisons in the world? What are the legal and human rights concerns for those yet to be charged? And why has it proven so difficult to shut down? I'm Nadine Talat, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice.
1: Our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped and defeated.
2: Nine days after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, then-U.S. President George W. Bush announced the start of the war on terror. In addition to sending its troops to invade Afghanistan, and fight against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, the United States also set out to capture not only those directly responsible for the 9-11 attacks, but also anyone involved with these extremist groups. Large bounties were offered by the U.S. for the capture and handover of men that it claimed were working with Al-Qaeda. Governments across the region also collaborated in capturing the men the United States was after. Hundreds of people were kidnapped off the streets most on the basis of extremely flawed or limited intelligence about who they were and what they
1: had done. It's important for Americans and others across the world to understand the kind of people held at Guantanamo. These aren't common criminals or bystanders accidentally swept up on the battlefield. We have in place a rigorous process to ensure those held at Guantanamo Bay belong at Guantanamo.
2: In reality, none of this was true.
1: The great lie, the great foundational lie of Guantanamo is that, and I think it was Donald Rumsfeld, the defence secretary, who said, you know, that they were the worst of the worst. In fact, they quite genuinely did not know who the majority of the people that they had at Guantanamo were.
2: This is Andy Worthington, an investigative journalist, activist and author of The Guantanamo Files. After rounding up hundreds of people it claimed were involved with Al-Qaeda, the United States faced a problem. Where could it indefinitely keep these men accused of plotting terrorist attacks? How could it sidestep the usual protections given to prisoners of war under US law? And how could it avoid scrutiny? What it needed was a place to use as a legal and humanitarian black hole. Guantanamo Bay, a 45 square mile territory on the eastern tip of Cuba, provided just that.
1: So Guantanamo, when it was established, which was over 21 years ago, it opened on January the 11th, 2002, had been deliberately chosen by the Bush administration as somewhere that was intended to be beyond the reach of the US courts. That very clearly is why they set it up there. And of course, you do immediately have to wonder, why would you want to be beyond the reach of the US courts? What is it that you intend to do there? Um, that means that you don't want any kind of scrutiny.
2: The United States has been leasing this piece of land from Cuba since 1903 and already had a naval base there. Soon, hundreds of Muslim men would arrive.
1: They claimed that they were holding people um, as enemy combatants, that they could hold entirely without any rights whatsoever as human beings. That's a fundamental thing to understand. They literally had no rights whatsoever. And they did this so that they could essentially interrogate these people that they'd rounded up using, as we would suspect, techniques that that may not have been approved, hence the need for hiding these people away. And then, of course, they treated them appallingly, thinking that they were hiding intelligence from them. They tortured and abused, you know, a significant number of the people at Guantanamo convinced that they were withholding information from them, when in fact, in a lot of cases, the reason that they weren't able to tell them was because they had nothing to tell them in the first place. They were so insignificant.
2: In total, 780 men and boys, all of them Muslim, have been detained at Guantanamo Bay since it opened. Of those, more than 90% were never charged with any crime. Just eight men have ever been convicted, and four of those convictions were overturned. Al-Nashri was captured by Emirati authorities in Dubai in 2002 and quickly handed over to the CIA. He spent the next four years being ping-ponged between CIA black sites across the world. At one point or another, he was detained in the UAE, Afghanistan, Thailand, Poland, Morocco, Romania, and Lithuania, before eventually being sent to Guantanamo Bay in 2006,
0: where he has remained ever since. Um, But suffice it to say, Mr. Nashiri spent four years in the CIA's RDI program, experiencing all manner of torture, all manner of sensory deprivation, all manner of isolation. And you can only imagine what that does to someone physically, emotionally, mentally. This is Katie Carmen,
2: one of the lawyers representing El Nashri. At the time of this interview, she's at Guantanamo Bay for pre-trial hearings in El Nashri's case. The RDI program is the CIA's rendition, detention, and interrogation program.
0: You can read in the SISI report about what he endured, but it was, you know, all manner of torture, um, from waterboarding to what the government euphemistically calls rectal rehydration or rectal feeding, which is not a medically appropriate or medically necessary procedure. It is simply torture. And we have had very graphic descriptions of that in in open court.
2: A U.S. Navy doctor who did an extensive medical evaluation of al-Nashri wrote,
1: He is irreversibly damaged by torture that was unusually
2: cruel and designed to break him. In my over 20 years of experience treating torture victims from around the world including Syria, Iraq, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mr. Al-Nashri presents as one of the most severely traumatized individuals I have ever seen. Al-Nashri is accused by the United States of masterminding the suicide bombing of American Navy ship the USS Cole in 2000 off the coast of Yemen. Al-Nashri is one of six, quote, high-value detainees at the military prison. He is being tried in a military court for war crimes but the trial has been stalled for more than a decade.
0: The charges that we see now were referred in 2011. It is 2023, so this is cases 12 years old. And we have just, in the last couple of years, begun to litigate the really big pieces of the case, including the motion to suppress the statement that he ultimately gives to FBI and NCIS agents in January of 2007, that would obviously form, I think, the centerpiece of the government's case against him.
2: In 2007, al Nashiri confessed to planning the attack as well as playing a role in other terrorist attacks against the United States. But he has asserted that his confession was forced and that he only said he did those things to secure some respite from the years of continuous torture that he was forced to endure across CIA black sites and at Guantanamo.
1: And let there be no doubt, the treatment of the detainees in Guantanamo Bay uh, is proper, it's humane, it's appropriate, uh,
0: and it is fully consistent with international conventions. No detainee has been harmed, no detainee has been mistreated in any way.
2: Despite what former U.S. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld claims, almost immediately after the first prisoners of the War on Terror began arriving at Guantanamo, reports of torture and inhumane treatment of the detainees by U.S. forces began emerging. Waterboarding, beating, being stripped naked, hung from their limbs in stress positions, sleep deprivation, mock executions, sexual assault, and other forms of psychological torture have all been alleged. The Bush administration denied these claims and insisted that detainees were being treated humanely.
3: But in my case, I was dragged to a tent in Kandahar, strip naked. I was hanged like sheep, and they started, like, shaving my body. I wasn't able to walk. And playing with our genitals, women would come and, like, do turk or put their asses in our genitals, making fun, and, like, and pretend, it just, like, it was so humiliated.
2: This is Mansour
3: Daifi. Assalamu wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Allah, This is a Yemeni greetings. So we just greeted our audience. I am from Yemen. I was detained in Guantanamo for around 15 years.
2: At just 18 years old, Mansour was working as a researcher in Afghanistan when he was captured and sold to the CIA, who accused him of being an al-Qaeda commander.
3: You were naked and hanged cold. So after that, they put us in orange jumpsuit. They hooded us, put us in hood, gagged. They put because I spit on them and I cursed them. Like they put duct tape on my mouth. Then they put goggles over my my uh, my eyes, earmuffs over my ears, and they would sign around my neck, beat me. So I get beating all the way. And the, port, the journey to Guantanamo to Iraq, 40 hours on the air, beating, slabbing, uh, loud music. Uh, Sometimes they pretend to give you water, and uh, they take the table like water, they just pour it in you. Recipient. No toilet, we defecated in peace and on ourselves. Sitting, they chain us to the floor, and it was painful.
2: Mansour now lives in Belgrade, Serbia. When the new Arab voice spoke with Mansoor, he was wearing a bright orange t-shirt mimicking the jumpsuits that detainees were forced to wear while in custody. Written across his chest are the characters GTM0441, his old detainee number. The wall behind him is covered in notes and posters of the men that remain imprisoned at Guantanamo. Mansoor said that, particularly in the early years at Guantanamo, torture or what the United States government euphemistically referred to as enhanced interrogation techniques, was extremely
3: common. The language was constructed to serve their own policies, which is legalizing what they call war and terror. Then they call enhanced interrogation technique. It is is torture. Yeah, they rephrased, constructed that language that also served their, what they call war and terror policies. They find what hurts you more. What do you like? What do you not like? What's your weakness? Where? How can it hurt you? So, if you complain to them, if you behave in a certain way uh, that reflects weakness or that hurts you, that will abuse against you the day you leave Guantanamo. It drives you crazy. You know, the, the physical torture can be. It, imagine someone combining physical and psychological torture. And also, with expert advisors, psychologists, interrogators, experts, the way to torture you, abuse you. They want to drive you to the breaking point.
2: Several times, detainees organized mass hunger strikes to protest their treatment and arbitrary detention. In response, detainees were force-fed, an extremely painful and uncomfortable experience that is considered a form of torture, while U.S. officials watched.
3: Who's this? 441. 441, do you know why I'm here today? No. Eat, I'm here to break your hunger strike. Tomorrow there will be no talking. You better start eating today.
2: One of the officials that Mansour remembers is presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis.
3: He was sitting like that, looking at me, and he was smiling. I was screaming, and the blood was in my, on my chest, in my uh, mouth, in my face, in the chair, and I was like screaming, and like, "Why are you doing this? Stop that! Please help! You know, like." And he was looking like this as as nothing happened, you know. The issue of trying detainees using
2: confessions obtained under torture has been one of the most significant legal and human rights concerns to emerge from Guantanamo Bay. Under international law, torture is a non-derogable issue, meaning that it is prohibited even in times of extreme emergency. Any confession given under torture cannot count as evidence. It is a commonly accepted truth in both the legal and scientific fields that any information obtained through torture is extremely unreliable and often entirely false. Torture subjects will say anything in order to end their torment.
3: Everything was designed there at Guantanamo in general, everything around you, to break you. When it comes to food, drink, clothing, solitary confinement, treatment, uh, it's everything, everything was designed just to make you through whatever your information to the interrogation to the interrogators. And everything was under control of the interrogators.
2: In the case of many of the men detained at Guantanamo Bay, forced confessions became the foundation of the legal case against them. In some cases, the United States had little or no other evidence to support the claims they were making.
1: They they're claiming people are dangerous, but they don't have any useful evidence. So it's all part of this problem of information that's extracted from people through torture or or abuse or forms of bribery, you know, a whole system that is fundamentally lawless.
2: In the case of Al-Nashri, his lawyers argue that the details of his torture are essential to defending him against the death penalty, and believe that the treatment he experienced taints the entire case against him.
0: Torture infects every bit of this case, and in fact, some would question, myself included, and I think a lot of human rights scholars, defense lawyers, and, and members of the public would question how this prosecution could even proceed knowing what we know. And knowing publicly what we know because of the the SISI report, how do you untangle that knot when someone spends four years being deprived of their very humanity. Not, I mean, we're not even just talking liberty, right? This isn't jail in, and in, I'm going to use Miami because that's where I practiced before this, but, you know, this isn't the Miami-Dade County Jail or the Federal Detention Center where someone serves six months. That in and of itself is terrible. <laughs> but, I mean, imagine not having a clue where you are. Your family has no idea where you are. You are scooped up off the street one day and literally just disappeared, and then the things that were done to them during the program, how does that not then taint everything else
2: that happened? But confessions under torture is far from the only legal obstacle in El Nashri's case. In 2001, Bush established a series of military commissions at Guantanamo Bay to try several detainees in military courts. Unlike civil or criminal courts, where defendants are afforded certain rights, what is known as due process, for Guantanamo detainees being tried in military
0: courts, many of these legal rights are denied. The lack of legal certainty is, I mean, it's, the lack of is exactly right. I, you know, in state and federal court, your client has due process rights. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has still not answered whether or not defendants in the military commissions in Guantanamo Bay have due process rights. We're sort of operating in this legal outer space. What rules apply? Hard to say, don't know. The military commissions at Guantanamo Bay
2: have been marred in both legal and ethical problems from day one. Civil rights groups say they deny detainees the right to a fair trial. These kinds of courts operate with a different set of rules, rules intended to secure a conviction. In these military commissions, hearsay is admissible as is evidence obtained through coercion. The identity of witnesses is kept secret, so defense teams cannot interrogate or verify the testimony being presented against their clients. Defense teams are denied subpoena power and the right to build their own case. Even the
0: basic right of access to counsel is a struggle. Can you imagine having an attorney-client relationship that is built on trust when there are things that your attorney cannot tell you? and there are documents that your attorney cannot show you. And so you will never see the full weight of the evidence that the government intends to offer against you in order to kill you at the end of the day. I mean, what sort of system is that? It's certainly not one that's just or fair or mimics due process even a little bit. It's just a combination of the lack of transparency, the, the fact that we're having to hold court in Guantanamo Bay because the government wishes to deny those men certain basic rights that they would have, were they in an Article Three court in Miami or New York or Cleveland. The result is a
2: crippling lack of transparency. The very fundamental and basic facts, documents, and identities of Al-Nashri's case have been kept secret from him and his legal team, as are the details of the torture used to obtain his
0: confession. It is wildly frustrating to operate in this system, you certainly do the best that you can, but God almighty, is it, is it frustrating? You know, and you're you're frustrated on your behalf because it makes the practice of law difficult, um, but you're more frustrated for Mr. Al-Nashiri because he's the victim in the system that is seeking to execute him without giving him a chance to fight for himself
1: like a kind of Groundhog Day is the way I generally describe it, where on the one hand, the defense teams for these men are trying to get the government and the prosecutors to reveal all the information they need to be able to defend them properly, which involves them being honest about what these men were subjected to in the black sites in which they were held, where, as we know, they were horrendously tortured. And, you know, the government and the the prosecutors position is that they're trying to hide as much information as possible. And this has just been going on and on and on for years.
2: Because of the seemingly endless legal and human rights violations, Guantanamo Bay and the system surrounding it quickly came to symbolize the brutality of the United States' war on terror. During his campaign in 2008, Democratic presidential candidate Barack Obama had emphasized the need for the United States to rethink its global war. He promised that, If elected, he would make it a top priority to shut down Guantanamo Bay. Just days into his presidency, Obama signed an executive order to close the detention center.
0: This first executive order that we are signing uh, by the authority vested in me as president, uh, president by the Constitution and the Laws of the United States of America in order to affect the appropriate disposition of individuals currently detained by the Department of Defense at Guantanamo Uh, and promptly to close the detention facility at Guantanamo, consistent with the national security and foreign policy interests of the United States and the interests of justice I hereby order. And we then provide uh, the process whereby Guantanamo will be closed uh, no later than one year from now.
2: Obama set up a review process to oversee his vision and evaluate the cases of the remaining 240 detainees. Through this process, most detainees were recommended for release, while 48 were considered too dangerous to let go. Mansoor said that things did improve significantly in 2010 with the change in administration.
3: We managed to now to sit with the Kamen administration. We negotiate better living conditions, came living, health care, better food, classes, and communication with our families, TVs, newspaper, and everything. Uh, we get most of what we asked.
2: But this was short-lived. By 2013, things had returned to the way they were before. By the end of Obama's presidency, 41 men remained at Guantanamo. In 2016, when the Republican Donald Trump was elected, he was outspoken in his support for keeping the detention center open and quickly reversed the policies of the previous administration.
3: This morning, I watched President Obama talking about Gitmo, right, Guantanamo Bay, which, by the way, which, by the way, we are keeping open, which we are keeping open. And we're going to load it up with some bad dudes, believe me, we're going to load it up.
2: In his four years in office, Trump only authorized the release of one detainee. Since taking office, President Joe Biden has quietly reignited efforts to close Guantanamo Bay, and either release or try those that remain there.
1: Biden inherited 40 men. And what he's done is that he's a, he's approved for release almost everyone that hasn't been charged. And that is a good thing. And that has come from pressure from you know lawyers and NGOs who were speaking to him from even before he took office and from a recognition amongst nearly 100 uh, lawmakers in his own party. Um, who have said to him, it's intolerable after over 20 years that we continue to hold people without charge of trial. So most of those people have been approved for release. Now he's finding it difficult to um, get them out of Guantanamo because most of them can't be sent back to their home countries.
2: This is a huge problem when it comes to releasing Guantanamo detainees. Despite the fact that the vast majority of those captured were never charged, let alone found guilty, the United States refuses to resettle them on U.S. soil. In some cases, the U.S. has refused to return them to their home countries, or their home countries have refused to take them back, citing security reasons. These men have essentially been blacklisted, despite their innocence. When this happens, a third country must be found that will allow detainees cleared for release to settle there. This has created a massive obstacle to shutting the detention center down once and for all many of the 30 men still at Guantanamo are stuck in this situation.
1: The only way that I can see the story of Guantanamo concluding is that we don't actually get to see the facility emptied and closed, but we do see it catering adequately for the care of these people, the ones who have been charged, while everyone else who hasn't been charged um, will have to be released. And if there is a Situation, as I suspect, where some of those men also can't be freed, then they will also have to be kept at Guantanamo. And my suggestion for that would be that this would be a non-penal situation, also providing the adequate mental health and physical care for these people.
2: For those who have been charged through the military commission system, like Al-Nashri, the recent report by the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention may provide some hope.
1: Now, you know, the military commission system, as I've said, is broken and dysfunctional in so many ways. But up until now, it has allowed the United States to claim that there is some legitimacy to their continuing to hold these men and to keep up the charade or the facade of a legal process because they're part of a trial system, the military commissions. So I think that I think this intervention is humiliating um, at a at quite a profound level that a, a significant mandate of the United Nations has said to the United States government, we're tearing away your veil of legitimacy regarding your trials because because it's, it's rubbish essentially.
2: For Katie, the UN report demonstrates that international groups are actively thinking about the end game in Guantanamo. Meanwhile, the US government continues to drag its feet and push ahead with a dysfunctional legal
0: process. And I think Mr. Al-Nashiri's case, like the other men at Guantanamo, come to the attention of these human rights groups in the UN because it's so abhorrent what has happened to them. And I think it shocks the conscience that the United States government is still plowing forward with this prosecution in the fact that these men aren't receiving any sort of mental health treatment or torture survivor treatment at Guantanamo Bay and that there's no discussion of a resolution because this system offers closure for no one it doesn't offer closure for victims and the victim family members it doesn't offer closure legally for the men involved it is a broken system because you can't <laughs> you can't begin something in an emotional and reactive state, let these men spend years being tortured and deprived of basic humanity, and then bring them in for prosecution and expect it to go well. This is the legacy of our own making, unfortunately. It is going to be looked on as a legal failure. It is gonna be looked upon as a human rights failure. It is going to be looked upon as a policy failure.
2: After two decades of absolute impunity, is justice still possible?
3: Guantanamo now becomes symbol of torture, lawlessness, injustice, uh, abuse of power and indefinite detention and uh, death sentence. You know, it's a place where give some kind of encouragement to other countries to create such places. And by keeping Guantanamo open, it's not just about those prisoners, it's also about our humanity.
2: For Mansour, simply shutting down the site is not enough to atone for the irreparable damage inflicted on those whose lives were destroyed by the U.S. government. To date, the United States has never accepted responsibility or wrongdoing. Not a single penny in compensation has been paid to those wrongfully captured, tortured and imprisoned at Guantanamo. For detainees like Mansour and al-Nashri, to achieve true justice, there must be accountability.
3: We are approaching the 22nd anniversary of Guantanamo. Yet Guantanamo is still open. Yet 9-11 victims haven't seen any any, any justice. Yet former Guantanamo Indians haven't seen any justice. So, you know, Guantanamo targets our humanity. When we say close Guantanamo, release those who have been released. And anyone charged with any crime, they should be given a fair trial and sentence, you know. It is justice for everyone. But for us, what closed Guantanamo means? Closing Guantanamo means, we need, as we demand, as former Guantanamo Chinese, first acknowledgement, uh, official apology, and we demand reparation and accountability. Because without these, even if they shut the, physically the place, Guantanamo is not, is not closed until there must be accountability, reparation. Official apology and acknowledgement happened, Then we can say, Iran said that can close Guantanamo chapter, other than it's too late to stay forever.
2: This episode of The New Arab Voice was written by me, Nadine Talat, and produced by Hugo Goodrich. Our theme music was by Omar Alfil. The New Arab Voice is taking a break and we'll be back with a brand new season of episodes on July 14th. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.